one aspect of God's grace that he's bestowed on me is allowing me to visit and uh, preach and teach in not merely good churches, but some great churches. This is one of them. I hope you appreciate this church. You do, don't you? Uh, I hope that you pray for and support your pastor and the other elders. The Lord loves this church. The Bible says in Acts that Christ shed his blood for this church. And therefore you should love it too. It's such a privilege to be here. I hope that you brought your Bible today um, in hard copy or if nothing else in digital form. And to turn to Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 9 through 18. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 18. Verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are on earth, heaven and on, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This is the first Sunday of the Advent season, and this message is appropriate to celebrating our Lord's incarnation. Let's focus attention on those words in verse 16, visible and invisible. My title today is the Lord of the visible world. The Lord of the visible world. But first, a little background. Uh, The Apostle Paul's letters, like this one in Colossians, weren't sort of fun personal news items, like Facebook updates. They were urgent messages to churches that he'd either planted or at least was overseeing. Usually he wrote them to correct problems in the church. This was true of the church at Colossae. This was a city in southwest Turkey, not far from Laodicea. The city no longer exists. Some of the New Testament cities do, but not this one. It was once a wealthy city. It was known for its syncretism, that is, its fusing of Jewish and Gnostic and pagan influences. And that's why Paul was urgently writing. These influences were affecting the church and infecting the church. 
The unbelieving Jews, for example, were committed to useless religious rituals. You'll read that in chapter 2. They overstressed circumcision. That also is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 11. The Gnostics, on the other hand, were the first heretics in the church. The Gnostics believed that a great, distant, unknowable God created other inferior gods. Actually, they sort of emanated from his being, not so much created. Who, in turn, created their own inferior gods and beings. And finally, one God, if you've read any of Gnosticism, and don't read too much. One God, they call the Demiurge, created this material world, our world. This, according to the Gnostics, was a big mistake. Matter, or the material world, is evil. It's a prison. The human body is a a cage. This is why humans should abstain from all bodily delights like good food and legitimate sex and comfort. The real us is the divine spark that the true God inserted into us to trick the demiurge. So salvation comes by escape from the material world and the body. This, in summary, is the Gnostic creed. Well, this fusion of false views had infected this church to which Paul wrote. Paul wrote to combat this this teaching. In doing this, he made a very vital point, and it's the one that I'm emphasizing today. Jesus is preeminent over all creation because he's the creator. The Father stands behind the creation, but Jesus is his creating agent. The Colossian Christians saw Jesus as just one mediator among many mediators, including angels. Paul says, no, Jesus is God's mediator between himself and man. And there is no other mediator. The church was infected by this early form of Gnosticism, that the material world was inferior and defective. They wanted to withdraw from it and eventually escape. No, Paul says, the visible world is Jesus' world, just like the invisible world is. When Paul writes that Jesus created all things visible and invisible, he's implying that he's Lord of all things, that in all things he may have the preeminence. There in that last line, beautiful statement in the last part of verse 18. In all things he should have the preeminence. Now let's step back for a minute. Our secular world is obsessed with the visible world. It has little interest in the invisible world. Secularists believe it's what you experience with your senses that counts. They are sensate, we would say, sensate creatures. There's no God, or at least no God that's relevant to us. There's no heaven. There's no hell. The physical world is all there is. So they live only for this life and the material world and material delights. I'm not really addressing that problem today. It is, of course, an evil problem. Many Christians, however, have the opposite problem. I'm assuming most of you, or all of you, I hope, are Christians, so that's why I'm addressing this problem. They see Jesus as Lord of the invisible world, the human heart, and heaven, and hell, and eternity, but they don't think much about the truth that he's Lord of the material, the the physical, this tactile world that we can touch and see and smell, hear, taste. I fear that the ancient Gnostic heresy has poisoned much of the conservative church just as it did the Colossian church. Not specifically this church, but the church generically. We don't think about the fact that Jesus is Lord of our bodies, and he's Lord of money, 
And he's Lord of sex and health and vocation and sports and farming and technology. And we don't consider how we should recognize his lordship. And so we look to escape the present world of death or at the second advent, not to honor the Lord and press his gospel kingdom while we're here. Secularists are interested only in the visible world, and many Christians are interested only in the invisible world. That's a very dangerous omission. I don't know of anybody here that has that problem. And if you do, don't tell me. But I do want to reinforce the biblical view so that we never entertain it. I want to make three points this morning, briefly. And I hope and pray empowered by the Spirit. First, Jesus is the mediator of creation. Jesus is the mediator of creation. Not just redemption. Second, Jesus is saving all creation, not just humanity. And third and finally, Jesus is Lord of the visible world, not just the invisible world. Okay, so first... Jesus is the mediator of creation, not just redemption. Now, we all know what a mediator is. It's somebody who goes between two parties to help reconcile them or bring them together. You might have heard of labor disputes in very large companies, and sometimes both management and labor bring in a federal what? Mediator. And he or she represents both sides, the one to the other. The mediator tries to reconcile two parties at odds with each other. Well, in verses 19 to 22, we learn that Jesus is the mediator of redemption. Man and God are at variance. Why? Because of man's sin. Our sin separates us from God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 says that plainly. Your sins have separated between you and your God. We stand under God's judgment. He is a holy God and we're an unholy people. But God loved us. He sent his son as the Savior and as his and our mediator. Jesus died on the cross. He took our punishment. So now God is reconciled to us as his people. Who does the reconciling? Jesus does. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, this is why the Roman Catholic Church is wrong, tragically wrong, in claiming that Mary, for example, is also a mediator. Great, exalted woman, but she's not a mediator. Jesus Christ alone is the mediator. So most of us understand this central truth about Jesus being the mediator. Jesus Christ brings us to God. Jesus is the mediator of redemption. But we often don't think about another and corresponding and equally important truth. Jesus is the mediator of creation. On Sundays, we often confess, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But we could be just as correct to confess that Jesus is the maker and creator of heaven and earth. You see, the Son is the Father's mediator between himself and creation. God's Son, Jesus Christ, is how God relates to creation. You see, God's not a material being. His son, who later became a material being, mediates between him and creation. But Jesus is not just a mediator in the past at creation. He's the consistent, ongoing, creational mediator. 
Now note that expression in verse 17. It reads in your translation something like, By Jesus all things consist. Some translations might say, hang together. Jesus' mediatorial work in creation keeps the world all together running smoothly right now. Did you understand that? Jesus Christ holds the planets in their orbit right now. Jesus Christ keeps air flowing into our lungs right now. Our Lord keeps the world supplied with water. He keeps humans and animals reproducing. You see, he's not just a creational mediator in the past. He's holding things together for God in the present right now. Everything hangs together. Everything consists and holds together by Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus, uh, this is why Jesus was the one who had to die on the cross. Have you ever wondered why it wasn't the Father or the Holy Spirit who came as a baby in Bethlehem to redeem? You ever wondered why that's the case? I mean, it could have been that way, conceivably. It's because the one who created the world must be the one who redeems it. The mediator of redemption is the mediator of creation. Unfortunately, for the last 150 years or so, the church has championed a high view of redemption, but a low view of creation. Now, the church has often stressed the historicity of Adam and Eve, and that's good. And six-day creation, and that's good. And the universal flood, the reality of the universal flood, and that's good. But not really understanding the deeper creational worldview. That's why even evangelicals today are collapsing before the onslaught of same-sex marriage. It's not really marriage, of course. And same-sex, quote, attraction. They think it has nothing to do with the gospel. Their attitude is, we don't really need to take a stand on homosexuality because it'll make us unpopular. And after all, it's not a gospel issue. We're a gospel-centered church. But friends, this has things just backwards. Redemption is the restoration and enhancement of creation. Sin corrupted creation, so salvation is the cleansing of creation. If you don't understand creation, you won't understand redemption. For example, think about this. God is an eternal father, and he has an eternal son. And the heavenly Jerusalem, we read in Galatians 4, is the mother of all of Abraham's seed. All of us. But if you support homosexuality, this family, father, mother, children, has no concrete meaning. The church is patterned after the creational norm of the man and wife. But if you condone homosexuality, you destroy what it means for the church to be the bride and for Jesus to be the groom. You see? If you bypass creation, you can't get to the gospel. Everything in creation is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything from angels to atoms, even Satan and demons. Jesus is Lord of all. You can't circumvent Jesus Christ to get to God. Jesus is the mediator. He's the only way to God in redemption, and he's the only way to God in creation. Now that brings us to the second point. Jesus is saving all creation, not just humanity. Now did you note that in verses 19 and 20? Look at them again. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ came first to reconcile sinners. But the entire creation was cursed because of man's sin. So the entire creation, not just man, must be redeemed, all things. So the goal of salvation is not just to rescue man from sin and take him to heaven. That view is more Gnostic than Christian. Man's sin corrupts all that we touch. It corrupts our music. It corrupts our education. It corrupts our politics. It corrupts our environment. It corrupts our technology. And we see this corruption everywhere we look. Now sometimes we're tempted to throw up our hands in despair. Sin and its corruption are everywhere. Evil has corrupted everything. And that's all true. But the good news is the good news, the gospel. Its effects aren't limited to human hearts. Jesus, the mediator, redeems and restores all that has been corrupted. The gospel will one day replace decadent art and man-centered education and Darwinian science and the autonomous sexual revolution and everything else that is sinful. The gospel is God's massive cleanup operation. Sin messes everything up and God cleans everything up through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, and this is the main point I want to make today. Jesus is Lord of the visible world, not just the invisible world. Jesus is intimately interested in our visible world. After all, he exists in a body even today, and he will for for all eternity. The Father and Holy Spirit are non-corporeal beings, but our Lord lives, according to 1 Corinthians 15, in a spiritual body. This means a body dominated and supercharged by the Holy Spirit. It means that even at his right hand in heaven, he is intimately tied to earth. Have you ever thought of it that way? Even at the Father's right hand, because he is in a physical body, a resurrection body, he always will be tied to earth in some way. Because he lives in a body. This shouldn't surprise us. Even in the Old Testament, we learn that God has a great interest in the visible creation. The Old Testament reveals God's will on matters as diverse as food, and God's will on economics, and God's will on sex, and politics, and music, and warfare, and education, and farming, and reading, and love, and sickness, and much else. The Bible contains truth on these and many other matters. But sadly, many Christians have sort of trained themselves to read around those passages. They'll just sort of read around them. When you actually show them these passages, they'll say, well, yeah, I guess that is there. I haven't really given that much thought. And that's the problem. They're not as spiritual as other passages. We've been tempted to think that if something is non-physical, it's superior. But it's not. The Bible doesn't pit one against the other, the physical versus the non-physical. Jesus is Lord of both the invisible and the visible, and he's deeply and equally interested in both. The incarnation proves that. I'm going to mention several of these and make a very pointed application. Let's think first of the church. We sometimes speak of the visible church 
and the invisible church. I wonder if that distinction is altogether helpful. The Bible doesn't use that language. It is true there's an invisible dimension to the church that only God can see. He sees into our hearts. The pastor and elders cannot. But in the Bible, the church almost always denotes what we call the visible church, the local church, like this one. Almost every time in the Bible, when you read church, uniformly translated, uh, translating ecclesia, it means a body like this one. Everybody can see it. When I say visible, I mean very visible. I mean, right? Can you see me and I can see you, right? And you can see everybody else. It's visible. In Colossians 2.5, Paul writes that he wants to visit the church so that he can see their faith. He wasn't, wouldn't want to visit the invisible church because then he couldn't see their faith or see anything. The biblical church is the visible church. You can attend every Sunday morning. You can hug your brother or sister in the Lord, as I saw many of you hugging this morning. You can shake hands. You can use your voice to sing praise to the Lord. You can share the tears of those who are suffering. You can delight with those whom the Lord's blessing. You can pray for the sick. You can lay hands on new deacons and elders. You see, it's all very tactile. It's all very visible. The church has visible ordinances or sacraments. Baptism is the visible rite of covenant inclusion. Baptism doesn't save you, but it visibly places you in the visible body of Christ. The Lord's table is the visible rite of continuing communion in the visible church. Like baptism, it doesn't save you and it doesn't keep you saved, but it visibly signifies your communion with the Lord and his church. Don't devalue these sacraments because they're visible. You see, the visibility of the church is indispensable. Without the visibility of the church, there is no church. There can be no church without visibility. It's made up of real flesh and blood people. The church, you see, isn't just about what goes on in your heart and mine. It isn't just about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's also about what goes on here visibly every Sunday and throughout the week in the visible lives of our brothers and sisters. When Paul told the Ephesian elders that God in Christ shed his blood for the church, he meant churches like theirs and like this one. The church is visible, and Jesus is its Lord, and we should love it. Next, let's think about, are you ready for this? The weather. Especially in Kansas, let's think about the weather. <laughs> the disciples once declared, uh, who can this be, speaking of Jesus? Literally, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus had been asleep during a storm on the lake, and his disciples fearfully awakened him, and, and with his words, he calmed the storm and the sea. You know why? Because he's Lord of the visible world, including the weather and climate. This is why we can and should pray for rain during droughts and fires, why we should pray for God to remove weather that will hinder our lives and the Lord's kingdom. Don't say, well, that's just not important. Of course it's important. If it's visible and he's Lord of the visible world, it's important. Today the leftists are obsessed with global warming. They weren't in Kansas last weekend. I saw the pictures. 
These leftists are given to apocalyptic scenarios. And then we hear uh, secular scientists speak of the end of the earth in a few billion years when the sun finally goes out and mankind will be extinct. Uh, Sorry, it'll never happen. You know why? This is Jesus Christ's world. And he's Lord of this world. He governs it by his benevolent firm hand. It won't race out of his control. He's taking the world and history into his own victorious end. We need never fear the future. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of the visible world, including the climate. And then let's think, here's another one, about architecture. It's very visible. It's a momentous part of our lives. It's so much a part of our lives that we don't even think about it. In many cases, it's part of the, from Sunday school, plausibility structure. We take it for granted. But God certainly is interested in architecture. He gave Moses the precise dimensions of the tabernacle and Solomon of the temple. Godly architecture is beautiful. It's orderly. It's ornamental. It's stable. Much of classical architecture did reflect this godliness in one way or another. Modern architecture tends to be a revolt against this godlier style. It's deliberately ugly, bland, utilitarian, trendy. It's meant to be replaced. Now, this is often true of the church. The church isn't the building, of course. We know that. The church is still the church if it's meeting in a field or in a wooded area. And some churches in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, have to do this. But when we can decide what a church building looks like, it tells us what we think about God. For one thing, the church is identifiable as a church. When I drove down the street this morning, I knew this was your church. I'd have known even if there was not a sign. And there are pews. Here's a Christian podium that conveys a Christian message. The great medieval cathedrals of Europe communicated a worldview. Architecture conveys a worldview. Theirs was God is majestic, and this edifice will outlast us and our great-grandchildren because the faith itself will outlast us. That's what their architecture was saying, among other things. Now, today, many of the new megachurch buildings look more like Metroplex movie theaters or Walmart than they do a church. Jesus is Lord of the visible world, and the building in which his people meet should reflect his lordship. And then there's clothing. The Bible refers repeatedly to clothing. God, God made clothes for Adam and Eve. Did you ever think about that? God was the world's first clothes designer. His law governs our clothing. This was true of the priests in the temple, but it's also true in the New Covenant era. James warns about honoring those who enter the church wearing expensive clothes while neglecting the poor. Paul warns women about overly ostentatious clothing and jewelry. But the Bible also warns against slovenly clothing. Recall Jesus' parable about the man who refused to wear the wedding garment. How we dress reflects our spiritual state. And I don't mean just... Modesty and immodesty, though that's a central fact. The trend today, certainly in California, is to wear casual, slovenly clothing everywhere, even to church. This is an act of disrespect to God and to our brothers and sisters. Now, the Bible doesn't require expensive clothing by any means. It does require respectful, modest clothing. 
and do not say this is unimportant. Jesus is Lord of the visible world, and he is Lord of our clothing. Finally, consider our bodies and healing. Jesus Christ is vitally interested in our health. Recently, I heard a pastor uh, complain that so many of his members' prayer requests were for physical healing. Asked for a lot of prayer requests and large number of requests or so-and-so who's sick and needs to be healed. Now, that's a fair complaint. Many Christians do seem to pray only for physical healing. Uh, Prayer for the salvation of sinners and for great reformation in the church and the world and for growth and grace should be at the top of our prayer list. But it's not somehow sub-spiritual to pray for physical healing. (laughs) The Bible is filled with prayers for healing. If you don't believe it, study this issue. It's filled with prayers for healing. And God usually, not always, but usually answered. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of the material world. And you know what? He loves our bodies. After all, he created them. And we will forever live in one. When we're sick, God commands us to call for the elders and pray for healing, according to James chapter 5. Now, I would remind you that's not a suggestion, that's a command. Now, the fact that God doesn't uh, choose to heal every sick Christian doesn't negate a great truth. The default is that God tends to heal people who pray. And if you don't believe that, you just need to read the Bible. I'd like to urge you in the new year, perhaps, read through the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll find something very peculiar if you're looking for it. Apart from his teaching and preaching, about all that Jesus does is heal the sick and exercise demons. He's doing it all the time, many times. This isn't a minor feature of his ministry. It's front and center. Why? Because Jesus was the embodiment of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is crushing Satan's kingdom. And Satan loves to torment and enslave men and women and children. He does this by sickness and demonic activity. That doesn't mean all sickness is satanically inspired. No, it doesn't mean that. But some of it clearly is. Asking God to heal his people is asking him to advance his kingdom. Not just to make you feel better. Although God cares about that. Sickness is a result of the fall. And he is gradually reversing the fall. I want to make very clear, this doesn't mean the Bible supports healing ministries. You see, Jesus didn't heal just for the sake of healing. Healing is a part of the preaching and advance of the kingdom gospel. And where the kingdom gospel is preached and believed and advanced, we should expect God to heal the sick. And we should pray for it not a healing ministry that blows into town. To conclude, Gnostics want to escape from the visible world. They think it's wrong to enjoy the visible world. They think that the human body is a degrading prison or cage or trap in which we're incarcerated. Friends, that's not the Christian view. That's a pagan view. Jesus is Lord of the visible world not just the invisible world. He's an everlastingly enfleshed being. Do you ever think about that? Jesus has a body similar to ours, a very supercharged, a resurrected body, and he will always have a body. 
His law governs our visible world. He's intimately involved in our visible world. He delights over creation. He delights over his creation. The flight and songs of birds and the roar of lions and the towering of giraffes and the loyalty of border collies and the majesty of the mountains and the stark beauty of the deserts. And he agonizes with and heals our pain and our scars and our sickness and deprivations and death one day, finally. Our Lord's world is not just heaven. Our world is his world, too. This, by the way, is why we live in hope. Did you know that? No consistent Christian can be a pessimist. We certainly can have sadness. Death brings sadness. He brought sadness to Jesus Christ himself. But we can't live pessimistically. Yes, we endure tribulations, but hope continually vanquishes our pessimism. Why? Just as Jesus Christ is Lord, not just of the invisible world, but also the visible world. So victory is not just in the invisible world, but also in the visible world. How often Christians believe that we can be victorious in our hearts. Jesus, he's Lord of my heart. He's not really Lord anywhere else. But I thank Jesus, he's Lord in my heart. The Bible doesn't teach that. They think we should not expect victory in our health and in our family and for our church and our wider society. But that's to limit the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all things, invisible and visible. The same Lord that takes away our sin, that gives us victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, will also gradually emerge victorious in our visible world. The Bible teaches in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, that our Lord knows what it's like to suffer in the body. And not just in his death. Hebrews speaks of our Lord who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus empathizes with our material visible infirmities because he suffered them. Jesus understands what you and I are enduring. Many of us have a frail constitution. We're easily shaken. We're easily anxious. Any little reversal or change can incite anxiety. We feel very weak sometimes and vulnerable. And sometimes we crumble. And our heart pounds. And our hands shake. It feels like we could almost die. Listen to these riveting words of comfort from the book of Hebrews. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Jesus the Messiah, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, that is, mediator, in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is, to turn away God's wrath for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted. 
Jesus longs to rush to our aid when we're tempted or weak or weary or anxious. He's not aloof from the visible world. Understand that. We must get away from these um, overly spatial ideas of God. The Bible does teach that God is above, looking down. The heavens are above. But we somehow get the impression, because of our astronomy, that basically God is like way, way, way out in outer space. He's like, like way, way beyond. That's not the biblical picture at all. The biblical cosmology talks about the various heavens, first, second, third heaven, and so on, indicates that what we call heaven and the existence and abode of God is actually very close to earth. We can't see it but it's yet, but it's very close to earth. There's this constant activity of God in the earth through his son, Jesus Christ. And heavenly beings constantly about us. In other words, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, the universe is a very warm place. God is not aloof from the visible world. He's always and everywhere actively involved in the world, particularly in aiding and defending his people. No matter what your pain and no matter what your hardship today, live in hope and live in victory. Rejoice in this truth. Jesus is Lord, not just of the invisible world, but the visible world also. This Advent season, Jesus loves and sustains us, and is deeply committed to this physical world, to you and me. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, that your Son didn't only redeem us on the cross and rise again. Glorious though that is. But he is your mediator between you and the heavenly realm and this created order. And he sustains creation. That he is Lord, not just of the invisible world, but also of this very tactile, physical, visible world. May we recognize his lordship and recognize his profound care for our physical condition. Lord, may we press, Father, his claims in all areas of life. For if he is Lord of the visible world, he will one day take it back completely. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our mediator, our Lord and King. Amen.